You know, I, I just love seeing a church family enjoying being together, <laughs> greeting one another, and that's how it ought to be, you know. It's, it's great. Church is about family and friendships, and so um, way to go. I, don't, I, I mean, it does have to come to an end at a certain point, though. I, I'd like to share God's Word with you. I have a little uh, message here, and so I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we could continue. This is kind of a big day. We're wrapping up Nehemiah, and so we're in chapter 13. And uh, the title I have here is Remember. It's, it's harder to remember sometimes, isn't it? And I actually saw some statistic. Every time you go through a doorway, there's something in our visual system and it, when just that we've gone through a doorway that makes us forget what happened because we're in a new space, a new room, and so we can forget. And um, it t- sometimes it's not just doorways, though, is it? We recently had our kids visiting and so uh, they live in San Diego, my, my daughter, son-in-law, and grandkids. And as they leave, they head home. We see that our son-in-laws forgot his phone at our house. And, you know, they're, they're going to be there, gone for, they're not coming back for weeks. And we're like, Lee and I, uh, we're like, how could you forget your phone? I mean, come on, you know. And he's a young man. Like, I think either later that day or the next day, our son, Corbin, Uh, he heads home to Diamond Bar. He was with us. He also forgot his phone. We're like, what are the odds? Who who does that? Later that day, I went to Home Depot. And and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. Sure enough, I forgot the phone. And so Lee is like, what is with these men in the family who can't remember anything? Maybe some of you can relate. I had another example of this. This is confession time. I was so looking forward to the men's breakfast. It's always great fellowship, delicious food. And sure enough, this was a week ago Saturday, and we even get the emails to remind me, I forgot. And I show up Sunday. I was so glad when Ken confessed that, that he also forgot. But Rich was great. I went up to Rich, and I'm like, hey, I feel bad. You know, I forgot. And he looked at me, and he goes, you broke my heart. He laid it on. He didn't give me any slack at all. He just was like digging in. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was sorry, but uh, I ah, forgot. Today we're looking at a passage in the Bible where the people just don't remember. It's tough on Nehemiah. And he's been through a lot with the people of Israel. Boy, the stuff he's put up with. And the things they've accomplished together. I mean, great things. But they just don't remember. And it's interesting because in experiencing that, I I think it kind of pierces Nehemiah's heart because he turns that into a prayer that he lifts up to God. It's kind of like, God, don't be like these people. (laughs) Please remember me for what I've done, where I've served, what what I've done for you, Lord. Please don't be like these people, right? Remember me, God. And that's a heartfelt cry and, and maybe something we've all thought of at some point. When I get before Almighty God, you know, really remember me? How I've lived, what I've done, my faith, my prayers. And, and it's a cry in Nehemiah. This is a godly man. And he's just crying it out at the last of this book. So I want us to look at it, and that's going to be kind of the word we use as we go through these different um, verses in this chapter 13. And uh, like I said, what stirs Nehemiah to pray that is what he's seeing. Let me ask you, how are you at remembering 
what God has told you to do? And what about the promises you have made to him? Do you remember? I want us to just look at this final chapter and see what we can learn from it. Let me just set the scene, and this is kind of why it's so tough on him. I mean, we're at the end of the book, and incredible things have happened. The, the wall around Jerusalem that had been completely demolished and destroyed has been rebuilt. So now the Jews, their capital city, has a little more sense of order, safety, respect among the other nations. Like this was representative of them as a nation. And this is their capital city, and the wall is back. And they respond as you would expect. They celebrate. They worship. It says they gather for the reading of God's word, the law. The city has been made right, and now it's time for them to get right with the Lord. So for days, they listen to the law. They pay attention. Then they hold, according to the, the law, a week-long feast, and they celebrate. The word of God is read daily by Ezra. And then to repent, they wear sackcloth. They put dust on their heads. They fast. They confess for hours in worshiping the Lord. Then they bless his name. They give him praise for his goodness, his compassion, all that he has done for them. This is kind of this great, and you, you've heard about it. You've been, here, you've been hearing these messages. I mean, wh what a culmination of all that God has done, and the people respond appropriately. It's wonderful. And in chapter 10, or just to remind you, after all of this, they commit themselves with an oath or a curse if they don't do it to obey the law. Listen to verse 10, 29. They commit themselves to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. And then in chapter 12, the wall is dedicated. And so there's choir singing, walking along the top of the wall, and Ezra and Nehemiah are there, and they finish at the temple. They sing, they rejoice, they offer sacrifices. They commit to caring for the temple according to the law and those who serve in it, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers. There's unity, joy, a heartfelt zeal with God to stay right with God. Obeying his word, they're dedicated. In fact, it says rejoicing is heard far away. This is chapter 12. And you think, wow, I mean, this is fantastic. I bet when we get to the last chapter, 13, it only gets better. I bet they just like, wow, this is, this is the victory lap, the final celebration. This is where we're going to read, and they all lived happily ever after. Oh, not so much. Yeah, people are people, right? You know how we are. Initially, it does look good in chapter 13. They separate themselves from their enemies, the, their sort of mortal enemies that were always hurting their walk with the Lord and their faith. Uh, Ammonites are uh, among them, the Moabites. So there's, in the start of chapter 13, there's some good things that happen. But then, remember our word, remember, they don't. And things go downhill. So I want to begin in verse 4 of chapter 13. And I want you, under this idea of remember, to see what happens and what we can learn from it. Beginning in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber 
where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is, of course, Nehemiah speaking. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Badiah for the Levites as the assistant of Hanan, son of Zachar, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving, protecting, and giving us God's word, your word. Lord, it was a long time ago that these events took place, but there is always application for us. We can discern what happened, we can learn from it and apply it. And Lord, I pray that would happen now, that in the actions of these people, we would examine our own lives, our own hearts, and from it we would just be uh, challenged and inspired by your Spirit to live in obedience, to live faithfully. So use your word, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> First point that I want us to consider in, under this topic of remember is remember God's house. You see what happened, and Nehemiah is not happy. I'll reread verse 11. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? They're not honoring God's house, God's temple that the Bible told them to build and keep and use to serve and worship God. And really, two things have gone wrong here, as you heard. The first one has to do with uh, Eliashib and what he did for Tobiah. He has given out the storerooms to Tobiah. Now, just to kind of refresh you on this, the, the temple is arguably the nicest building in Jerusalem. I mean, it would be beautiful. It's also where all the movers and shakers would gather. All the people would go there. People of prominence and influence. So if you wanted to be in the center of it all, with the best place imaginable to have your own private quarters, to greet people, talk to people, have a little influence, make deals as you need, where would you want to be? You'd want to be in the temple. And so Tobiah, who was really just an arch enemy of the Jews, but somehow he is related to the high priest, Eliashib. It says 
uh, related, it means probably through marriage in some way. And so Eliashib, for reasons we don't really know, actually starts clearing out these rooms that are in the temple where the grain and the offerings are stored that are then used in worship of the Lord. They're also used to provide for all the people who work in the temple, the Levites, the priests, the singers. This is their vocation. It's full-time work as God has ordained, and this is their sustenance. But Eliashib, for whatever reason, connects with Tobiah and says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll just clear out all these storerooms of, of offerings given to God, and we'll make this kind of your private apartment area. One word says rooms, then it says, one word says room, then it says rooms. It implies he had more than one. He's got some sort of grand suite. He's got the entryway, the bedroom, the, the meeting room. I don't know what all he had, but it was large enough that all this offering, the grain, and, and everything that was brought, there's nowhere to put it. And so we see what happens. The people then leave that work there. And that he would do it for Tobiah. Do you remember chapter 4? There's kind of this famous dig that he, he brings on the Jews. They're just starting to rebuild the wall. And Tobiah the Ammonite shows up, and he mocks them. And he, he says, this wall is so flimsy and weak that if a little fox jumped up on it, it would crumble. Now, that's the opposite of what you want when you're building a huge wall to protect a city. But he was that much against the Jews, and he continued to be an enemy and a problem. And now, of all the people, he's been given rooms in the temple for his private residence? This is unthinkable to Nehemiah. And you, you saw how he reacted. He's furious. It's interesting to me to watch over the years how when people see what God is doing and sometimes his buildings and his work, there's the wheels start turning like, how can this be a self-serving thing? I've mentioned to, to many of you, I, I was uh, from years pastored at Harbor Trinity just across town. That church is on the corner of Baker and Fairview. It's one of the busiest intersections in the city of Costa Mesa. And the way that church is set up is the buildings are withdrawn back a little, so right out on the corner is a huge parking lot. This is prime real estate. People constantly came to us wanting to use the parking lot right out there on the corner to buy, no, to sell their goods. Oh, they just constantly, hey, could I set something up? Can I do this? They just saw the business opportunity, and we turned them down. We said, well, no, this is for God's people to gather. You're welcome to come to church. They never seemed to want to come to church. We'd invite them, yeah, please come. But, but they, they saw the business opportunity. One time, I'll never forget, I come out of church, and this person didn't ask. So we look out on the corner in the parking lot, there's an easy up set up. There's all kinds of tables, and there's goods for sale. And he's got his vehicle, and he's sitting there. People are coming up and buying. And we're like, what is going on? It's like a Jesus moment. The money changers in the temple, right? I went out there. I didn't turn over his tables. I should have had a little more moxie. I would have done it. But, but I went out there. I'm like, you can't be out here. This is a church. We're, we're here to worship God. We're, this isn't a business space. For you. 
And he was, you know, he took his stuff and went away. But I'm like, wow. And then we read a passage here a long time ago. Same idea. How can I take what is God's and somehow profit from it? Instead of God serving, how can I make this self-serving? And that's exactly what takes place. And as I said, that then from bad to worse, because that is happening, the tithing system goes by the wayside. The law described very uh, specifically that people were to bring a tenth as a tithe to the Lord, whether it be their flocks or their grain or from the vineyard, whatever their business, they were then to look at the the income from that business and, and bring a tenth as a tithe to the Lord. And it would provide for the temple and would provide for all the people who worked there. And the interesting thing is, they knew it. Remember how I said a lot of this is about how they didn't remember? Chapter 10, they commit to bring in the first fruits of crops and trees, firstborn of cattle and flocks, to the priests, the Levites, to the temple storerooms. In fact, they say, and this is a quote, verse 1038, we will not neglect the house of our God. But time has passed, and they don't remember. Imagine the first time these people showed up to the temple. Remember, this isn't like us. When we give to the Lord and church, you know, we do it on our phone, or maybe we write a check. It was harder for them to give. Imagine having a farm, you know, five miles, 10 miles, 30 miles from the temple. You can bring an offering and you're loading up all this grain on a, on a wagon or a cart, and you're going 30 miles just to bring an offering. That's a commitment. That's like, I'm going to obey God. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But then they show up, and they, they show up to the room where they're supposed to bring the offering, and they say, oh, you can't, you can't put it there. We don't have anywhere to put it. Well, why not? Oh, Tobias using those rooms. I mean, this would have been so frustrating. And finally, the people throw up their hands and say, forget it. I'm not going to do it. I just won't bring it. And then, as you, you heard, all the priests, the Levite singers, they're like, well, we no longer have income. How can we work full time here without food? So they all go back to their own farms and their own fields. And everything just ends like that. God's house is neglected because of the step that was taken. They made a commitment, but they don't stay with it. They don't remember. And so then Nehemiah comes back to this situation. The king must have summoned him back to Babylon, says he was there for a while. I read the different commentaries and and the historians think he was probably there a year or longer. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he discovers everything has gone wrong. But as I read and you heard it, he makes it right. He steps in and says, we got to get this back how it's supposed to be. And so they do. And everything is good again. Nehemiah helped them remember. And sometimes we need that as people. But I just want to say a word of encouragement. Thank God for those who remembered, who went before us, and knew that it was important to bring a tithe, to bring offerings to God's house, to God's work. And we're sitting here in this beautiful sanctuary, built long ago, and all of this property that Lighthouse has, man, praise God for those who just said, hey, let's, let's 
give. Let's make this happen. Let's buy that land. Let's, let's find a way to build. I mean, look at this. There, there's no debt on anything that this church has. It's just amazing. And thank you for being a part of that. When you bring your tithes and offerings, there, and there's a blessing in it. God knows uh, your heart. He knows your faithfulness. And there's a blessing in it. It's wonderful to hear when there's stories that are the opposite of this, when people just say, I want to use what I have to bless and serve God. We were in our small group. Uh, we were at uh, with Ken and, and Paula here this week at their house. And uh, Ken, who's very involved, as, as you may know, with Gideons. And Gideons is a great group, right? I mean, they put Bibles. You've seen them in the hotel. You open the drawer next to the bed, and there's the Gideon Bible. And they give them out. In fact, Ken was, uh, came to staff uh, I mean, this week uh, to bring Bibles that will go to the jail here in Costa Mesa because uh, uh, Jeff, uh, you know, our pastor and chaplain, takes them there. So it's a great organization. But he said, Ken told the story that they're stored in a warehouse. And the person who is a part of Gideon's and has this warehouse actually has a jewelry business. So he's got this warehouse for his personal business. This is his personal business. But he says, how can I use what I have to serve the Lord? How can I just do something? And so he uses part of that space to store Bibles so they're there when Gideon's want to distribute them. Uh, wherever they can. And that's how it ought to be. When we're not saying, okay, I want self-serving angle here, but no, I want God-serving. Lord, what can I do? And again, I want to affirm you for your faithfulness and bring in tithes and offerings. I was talking to Pastor Jeff here, and, and recently our, our uh, family ministries director, Sherry, they were talking, and, and Jeff kind of had a heart and wondered, can we bring you on full-time? And in talking to Sherry, they worked it out. So now she's able to go from part-time to full-time, do even more ministry in different areas to advance God's work here in our church. How could Jeff even agree to do that? How is he able to do that? Because the tithes and offerings are there. There's a commitment of this body to say, we want people working in God's work. We want them to, to be able to do this. And we want to come and have worship. And, and I just want to affirm you for a heart to say, you know what, we're going to bring what we can by faith, by faith to the Lord. And it's, it's not under obligation, but it's just faithfully because we love the Lord and we want to give to him. And I want to give you an encouragement here. I spent much of my career uh, as a youth pastor. And my wife, Lee, stayed at home. And we had three kids. And we were always committed to tithing. And we always had enough. And youth pastors don't make a ton of money, at least not back in the day. I, I can't speak to what happens here. But back then, it, it was, you, you, you're just grateful. <laughs> you're grateful to serve. And I saw God provide. And I saw this verse come true. I'm going to read it for you. Malachi 3.10. Only time in the Bible God gives us permission to test him. Otherwise, you are not allowed to, told never to do it. One exception. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. And oh, how I've seen that to be true. So Nehemiah gets them right, helps them to remember what God's house is for, and to bring the tithes 
and the offerings. That's the first area. Let's look at the second one. It has to do with the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Instead of setting aside this day for the Lord and not working, they're buying and selling and working. They are in their jobs doing business. They are not ceasing from their labors and enjoying rest and worship and time with God and family and just delighting in what God has given him. They're not honoring the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which says, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. They are not obeying. It is business as usual. But they know better. They should remember, back in chapter 10, verse 31, it says, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. They made a pledge, an oath. They said God will honor the Sabbath. They said it in chapter 10. Ah, But Nehemiah left for about a year or so, and they forgot. Let's pick up with the chapter. I'm reading it from verse 17. He comes back, and he deals with it. He says in verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now are you, you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah does what it takes to make sure the Sabbath is kept. So he says, when the Sabbath begins, sundown on Friday, till when it ends, sundown on Saturday, shut those gates and doors. Do not let merchants come and go. And then he puts the Levites there to make sure. That if people wanted to come in for the worship or, or go out, the, the, doors, the gates could be open just for a person to go through, but the Levites are there making sure that goods are not going in and out to be sold. And then Nehemiah even threatens them with some sort of corporal punishment, saying, I will lay hands on you. It's sad that it came to that. Because the Sabbath is God's gift to us. I mean, it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? That God said, hey, I'm going to give you one day a week. And that's just to be with me. That's just to hear the scripture. That's just to rest. Now, you work enough. And if God didn't give us this day, we'd probably work right through it. A lot of people, you know, the phrase workaholic. There's something in us. There's always something else needs to be done. And our wheels are always turning because there's something else I should be doing. And God's like, you just got to rest. And so he put in his plan from the start 
a day of rest. And just the idea that God wants to be with us. I loved it last week when Pastor Jeff told this story of how when his kids call, boy, he's going to take that call. Nothing blesses him more than to hear from his children and talk to them, and he just loves that. And that's our God, and he was so determined to make sure we had that time with him, he put in the Ten Commandments that one day a week, that's my time with you. Now, he wants to be with us always and pray. I understand that. Of course, we're always in communion to God, but he set apart a day to really gather us, just to hear from his word, to sing and worship him, a day of rest, the Sabbath. And it's such a beautiful gift. And it is that. Jesus had to clarify. Because the Pharisees had made it a burden on the people. So restrictive that it was almost kind of a, a, a not a nice day. And so Jesus clarified, Mark 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. It's God's gift to us. He made it for us. And I'm certain if any of us had a long-lost relative who just surprised us with a huge inheritance before that relative passed and gathered us, but that relative didn't believe in banks, thought they might fail. I don't know why he would think that, but this relative thinks maybe banks could fail. So he kept it all in cash. And you walk out of there with a million dollars in cash, and you put it in the back seat, and as you're driving away, I'm pretty sure you would take care of that gift. I don't think you'd forget about it. I don't think you'd ignore it. I don't think you'd leave the windows rolled down and just bills were flying out on the freeway and, ah, oh, who cares? You'd park wherever in a parking lot and just leave the doors unlocked and go shopping. I'm pretty sure that gift would mean something to you. Well, how much greater gift did God give us with the Sabbath, a day with him? And I wonder how often we've just squandered it. We've forgotten about it. We've just let it become another regular day. And it shouldn't be. It's just too precious and too amazing just to set, up, just to set aside all the other stuff that's constantly in our head and on our shoulders. And just, ah, oh, no, no, this is my day with the Lord. I'm resting today. I'm just going to enjoy time with the God who loves me and the God who saved me. So Nehemiah has to help them remember by stepping in and taking some pretty big uh, steps, but it works. Well, the third and final thing I want us to uh, consider has to do with unfaithfulness. They forget to be faithful to God. And it has to do with marriage, and they're marrying uh, other peoples. And they had already said that they wouldn't do that. And I need to just explain a little of it. In our day, you know, the gospel has gone out to all nations, all races, all ethnicities. So some of the racial things we read about in the Old Testament, they just don't apply to us anymore. And we understand that there's believers who love Jesus of, of all uh, heritage and ethnicity and race. But in this day, it was just very different. Typically, a people, a nationality, or race had their own gods, their own idols, and so it really was, the, the marriage could really be a stepping away from God to embrace that idol. It gets so bad in this case, again, this is many years ago, it gets so bad that they're intermarrying and the children they're having, they're not even teaching them Hebrew. So, so how are these children going to hear the, the law of God read? They don't even understand it. They don't understand the Hebrew language. And it's like, well, they could have used the other. There weren't all kinds of translations back then like we have now. 
There was just, it was just in Hebrew. And so if a priest gets up and reads the Bible, the parents didn't even care that the children wouldn't understand it because they didn't even know Hebrew. They had stepped away that much from God. And so Nehemiah, of course, is, is furious. They had said they wouldn't. They promised 1030. We promised not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or their daughters for our sons because of the idolatry that would come from it, what it would represent. But they didn't stay with that. So let me read to you what Nehemiah has to do to help him remember. This is our final reading. It says, And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah has had it. How could you let this happen? You're not even teaching your children Hebrew. Notice how he's escalated it throughout the chapter. He started off with verbal. Then he threatened physical punishment. And now he has actually taken hold of them and beat them. He's pulling out their hair as a punishment, as a rebuke. And he's giving Solomon as the example. Solomon was wiser than any of us could ever hope to be. He was brilliant. The wisest man in the Bible, arguably the wisest man who ever lived. But what happened? He married women who had different beliefs, different gods, different idols, and he followed them. How could that happen? And he's bringing that up saying, what are you doing? You're being unfaithful to our God. For us, the application here would probably be very different. It's, it might not be related to marriage at all. But we need to ask ourselves, Lord, is there an area where I'm so into it, I'm embracing it, I'm so caught up in it so much, it's pulling me away from you. It's making me unfaithful. And this is kind of working itself into my system and in my thoughts and priorities and values. And it's like it's consuming me. And it's, it's like, a ma it's just drawing me away from God. If, ne if a modern-day Nehemiah showed up and got in each of our faces, what would he call out? You know, would, and, 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 uh, would he have to pull out your hair? I mean, some of you are a pretty easy target. You got a good-looking head of hair. It'd be harder on me. But, but I still wouldn't want him to, you know, rebuke me and confront me. And we have to honestly look and say, Lord, I, I see what these people did. Reveal to me, convict me, show me if somehow I'm straying into unfaithfulness. If there's something that's having that same impact and negative consequence on me. And so it ends with, and I just want to read the very last line in the book. After Nehemiah confronts them, he makes sure they get this right and deal with it. He cleansed them from everything foreign and he took care of it. 
But he ends with this, remember me, oh my God, for good. And there's just something beautiful about remembering. And when we remember what God has done, what we've committed to him, how good he's been to save us by his son, it stirs in us a love for him all over again. I mentioned being in staff meeting this week. We were gathered and uh, Pastor Bill was bringing up uh, Jesus Revolution. He had just seen the movie. And if you've seen it, it's unbelievable. It's just such a wonderful movie. But, but it was great because Pastor Bill's like, I was one of those hippies. I couldn't believe it because I saw the movie. I'm like, you were, you were actually one of them? He's like, I lived in that house. And, and he went on to tell a lot more. I'm going to let him tell the story at some point. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But just to hear him remember what God has done. And he hadn't forgotten as he served Jesus all these years. There's something powerful about remembering. But I want to encourage you with this. Our God remembers us. It would have been about 2,500 years ago that Nehemiah stood before Almighty God and got to find out God remembers. In Genesis, it says God remembered. In Exodus, it says God remembered. And in Isaiah 49, it says, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Our God remembers us. Our acts of goodness, our faith, our love for him. He says, I will remember. And even as a statement to encourage us, he says, I've even engraved your names on the palms of my hand. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Our God remembers. In fact, the, you say, he remembers everything? No, actually, this is the good news. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The only thing he chooses to forget is our sins. But he remembers us when we come to him by faith and believe in the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, but on the third day he rose again, defeated death so that all who believe in his name would have a life forevermore. Amen? Amen. Our God remembers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you for the great work you did in and through Nehemiah, his boldness, his faithfulness to your word, his love for people, to just stay in it and keep caring for people. Sometimes he had to bring the rebuke, but he was faithful. And Lord, I thank you for how you've been faithful to this church and how you're so faithful to us. I thank you for your love and your mercy. So undeserved. We come before you, we come to you full of sin, but out of your great love and kindness, compassion, you forgive us and call us your own. And we thank you and praise you for that. And we will, Lord. We will praise you both now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's pray for his name. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, 
Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.